Welcome to the ninth episode of Shift Impact Build, a podcast about shifting mindsets, impacting student outcomes, and building equitable systems in education. A special thanks to all of our dedicated listeners and a special welcome to any new listeners. Just a reminder, we are recording from home, so please excuse any background noise. This is Caitlin, and I am joined today by Adelia, Chris, and Jermaine. This will be our final episode of season one, and we are looking forward to a great show. We are very excited to have none other than the Bronx's own Dr. Jamal Bowman with us today. Dr. Jamal Bowman was born and raised in New York City until the age of 16 when he moved to New Jersey with his family. Bowman graduated undergrad with a degree in sports management from the University of New Haven, but he chose to pursue education instead, earning a Master of Arts degree in counseling from Mercy College and a Doctor of Education in Educational Leadership from Manhattanville College. He worked first as a crisis management teacher in an elementary school in the South Bronx in 2009. Dr. Bowman founded Cornerstone Academy for Social Action, a high-performing middle school in the Baychester section of the Bronx. During his tenure as a school building leader, Dr. Bowman was an advocate against standardized testing, citing their connection to the perpetuation of inequality and ultimately reinforcing a negative relationship with what should be called bad education. After 10 years as principal, Bowman pursued the Democratic candidacy and beat out longstanding rep for the 16th Congressional District, Elliot Engel. Jamal currently resides in Yonkers with his wife and three children. For 20 years, Jamal advocated for the students in the schools he served and will continue to be a champion of children and working families when elected to Congress. Thank you for chatting with us today, Dr. Bowman. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. So, uh, Dr. Bowman, we actually, uh, well, we, we quasi met through Dr. Waite's class. Uh, you were a guest speaker at, at, at her uh, ELAP class. Um, so as soon as you were running and, and, uh, and, and, and all that, I was quick to tell people, oh, yeah, 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 I met him, met him. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so uh, you, you're... I, I think your your school building leader experience and passion for education is important um, to preface regarding your ties to our podcast and to the world of education. Can you tell us what prompted you to move from serving as a founding principal in the Bronx to running for Congress? You know, uh, thank you, uh, first of all, for having me. Um, I believe uh, in the unlimited potential of our children. You know, and my mission and my vision in education was to create learning spaces that tapped into that unlimited potential uh, in a space that allowed them not just to do well academically, but to thrive beyond the walls of the school. And I just felt that our school system wasn't doing enough to tap into that. Um, first of all, our schools are chronically underfunded. And secondly, we're implementing a philosophy of education that is rooted in the early 1900s. You know, it's pretty much an assembly line mentality and, and, and sees our kids more as widgets than as creative, brilliant, innovative, social change agents uh, within their communities. So that was always my vision uh, for our kids and, and my vision for the families as well who lived, who live in uh, communities that have been uh, neglected of resources for, you know, since the inception of America, right? So for me, you know, I just wanted to be a part of continuing to build that movement. And the tipping point happened for me 
in 2017-2018, th when 34 children died within the K-12 school system in the Bronx, and 17 died via suicide. So not only were we not tapping into the unlimited potential of our kids, but because of that, and because of the trauma that they deal with, because of poverty, because of bad policy, they were literally killing each other and killing themselves. Uh, so I got to the point where enough was enough, um, and we started exploring a run for Congress, challenging Elliot Engel, who had a reputation for being absent, uh, not present, and not uh, aligned with the needs of, of the district. And uh, after expo exploratory phase, we decided to jump into the race on June 18th, uh, 2019, uh, with the endorsement of the Justice Democrats, uh, the same group that endorsed AOC in 2018 in her run against Joe Crowley. Uh, they helped lead her to victory. And now, you know, I'm sitting here as the Democratic congressional elect in New York, New York 16. All right, thank you for that. So, Dr. Bowman, um, as you may be aware, our team is composed of various educators. We have people who have been principals, coaches, teacher leaders, and of course we all taught. Um, ironically, we have one of your former teachers on our team, Ms. Marcia Feliz, um, and she often speaks to us about your belief and restorative practices in your school. Why do you feel it was important to bring those practices to your school? And how do you think those practices may inform some of your policies as a congressman? You know, restorative justice is about building community and making sure if a child uh, commits a harm against that community, there's a chance for reconciliation and there's a chance to restore that child as a vibrant member of the community. Unfortunately, uh, too often in our schools, when a child commits a harm against the, against the school, the child is suspended and often discarded and ostracized within that school and within the larger community. And that's just not something, you know, we, we believe in. You know, we believe in truth and reconciliation. Uh, we believe in restoring the relationships that may have been harmed because of uh, what that child did or, did or didn't do or was a part of, excuse me. Um, and we believe in continuing to build community so that children can see that what happens in the community, they're responsible for and accountable to. Um, so that that's the belief. And it's helped, it's helped us to create a school climate and culture where children feel real, really feel invested uh, in what we're doing and teachers feel invested at a different level as well. Again, this is all about uh, educating the whole child uh, socially, emotionally, psychologically, physically, as well as cognitively. And it's not just about a hyper-focus on uh, a myopic view on what, what our schools should look like and what education looks like. And in terms of policy, um, we put something out, a platform called our New Deal for Education, mm -hmm. uh, which, is, which is rooted in restorative justice, which deals directly with the issue of the school-to-prison pipeline. It also focuses on culturally responsive education, uh, trauma-informed teaching, and implementing the multiple intelligences. So... You know, if a child uh, doesn't love math or ELA or social studies or science, they have music, they have the arts, they have sports, and they have other things that they can get involved in that, again, taps into that unlimited potential. Uh, we also have something called a, a reconstruction agenda. So our reconstruction agenda is focused on, you know, a historical context. So we tried reconstruction after the Civil War, 
unfortunately, you know, the formerly enslaved were kept out of that reconstruction process, uh, not just through government policy, but through through uh, domestic terrorism. Uh, we also tried reconstruction after the civil rights movement, uh, but we were kept out once again due to mass incarceration. So this is a third time the charm situation where we're focused on a reconstruction agenda uh, that that is centered on truth and reconciliation, uh, reparations, uh, and moving uh, resources from uh, our bloated military industrial complex and police forces and moving it towards public health, like housing, food security, environment, education, jobs, and humane immigration and criminal justice reform. Uh, so yeah, that's... Uh, that's how that, that vision for restorative justice, that's what it looks like when we talk about policy at, at the congressional level. Mm -hmm. So ironically, before I joined the art team, right, I was the director of restorative justice at uh, Bronx Collaborative High School. And I remember one of the toughest parts of the job was getting teachers to look at their mindsets and kind of like have a mindset shift away from punitive and more towards restorative. Thinking about that, when dealing with congressmen, how does your experience and working with restorative practices kind of give you an edge on helping them to shift their mindset, so to speak? Yeah, uh, it, it, it gives me patience. Uh, it gives me incredible, you know, I, I hope to use my the listening skills that I've acquired over 20 mm -hmm. years of being an educator. Uh, and listening, you know, as a, as a principal, you have to listen and learn from the teachers you work with, uh, the students you serve, and their families. And what you're going to hear is not always going to be in alignment with what you believe or what you know to be true based on research. So it's about meeting people where they are, you know, having open and honest conversations and then hopefully moving that conversation in a direction that, it, that, is, that is right for kids. And for me, everything I do in Congress, everything I'll do for the rest of my life is going to be centered on the needs of children. Um, not only have I been an educator for 20 years, but I'm the father of three as well. Um, and not just centered on children, but centered on children with special needs, centered on English language learners, centered on black and brown children, centered on poor children, centered on the children who are most vulnerable. Um, so that, that allows me to enter that space with a certain level of empathy and compassion that I think many in Congress have lost because 50% of Congress are, are, are millionaires and the other 50% are lawyers who work for millionaires. Um, so it's good to enter that space as an educator because it gives me an entirely different perspective. I don't, I wouldn't call it an advantage, um, maybe an advantage in talking about education, but the people there, they're there for a reason. They think their ideas are the best as well. And they think they're right also. <laughs> so it's about, you know, finding a common ground in a way that from my perspective works for the majority of people. I guess I don't actually expect you to remember, um, you know, with the six degrees of separation in <laughs> in the DOE, but I've actually met you as well um, in Dr. Terry Watson's class um, at City College a few years ago. And so I recall that year being a time when we had transitioned from state tests counting for teacher evaluation, and it would solely be based on the measure of teacher practice or the MOTP. It was also a very controversial time with reports of you um, as a principal of a school whose students had outperformed their comparison group on state exams, um, encouraging families to stay informed about their rights to opt out of high stakes testing, knowing uh, that many school leaders are concerned 
more about how opting out affects the school's Title I funding and how test scores affect quote-unquote adequate yearly progress, why did you decide to spend time sharing information about opting out with families rather than focusing on test preparation? Well, it was my job to share that information. You know, when parents asked about it, it was my job to give them the, the honest, truthful answer. It was my job to give them the entire picture, not just the picture the DOE or the system wanted them to have. Um, so they asked and I answered. Um, in addition, you know, to your second question, you know, test prep uh, does not accelerate learning. Um, test prep gets students ready for a test, a singular test. And they may do well on the test, but what about the learn? What about sustained learning and sustained cognitive development that they are going to need as they go into high school and as they enter the real world? So that that's so that's the second thing, right? Like test prep doesn't lead to sustained uh, learning outcomes and doesn't develop our kids cognitively in the way that we know they need to be developed to deal with the real the real world. The third thing I will mention is. You know, the opt-out movement, you know, was initially a white suburban mother movement. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just hate the fact that black and brown families are often kept out of these conversations. And even though those white suburban moms had the, had the agency to advocate for themselves, I wanted to make sure that black families had the same agency uh, in, do in doing so. And then the, the fourth thing I, I would mention, and, and this is directly to school principals, um, you're not going to lose funding if, you're, if you have high opt-out rates. Um, you might be put on this arbitrary state list that, you know, where they call your school a failing school, and you have to navigate that politically however, however you choose to. But then the third thing, we have to understand that we're living in a revolution right now. You know, we're, we're living, if you combined... Uh, you know, the, the, the civil rights movement, and you add on top of that a global pandemic, that's what we're living through right now. So in this moment that we're living through this, it's time for, for people who are really about change to step up and, and, and be leaders and be a, be a voice for the voiceless and really challenge the system to do better. So I would just encourage, you know, all principals, or all assistant principals, all teacher leaders, all teachers to step up and, and, be, and be leaders in this moment. Educators have a tremendous opportunity because we work day to day with children or in spaces where we can impact the lives of children. And particularly in this moment, but every day, I believe we need to be revolutionary in that moment. You know, Nelson Mandela says, you know, the number one way to, to, to change the world is through education, right? So, so let's, let's take that mantle, mantle. Let's, let's take that charge and let's do something special with it. You know, th this is not a time to be docile. This is not a time to, you know, we're always worried about our jobs, but there's strength in numbers and they're not going to fire 100 people. Uh, you know, they're just not. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would just push everyone to just, if the system isn't working for children and educators and parents know this, um, then it's time to push back against that system. I was also a student of Dr. Waite. And one thing that I've taken with me is her saying, show me your budget and I'll show you what you care about. 
Um, so going along with the idea of being revolutionary, can you explain the thinking behind using your budget for counseling positions rather than using the budget to um, increase school leadership positions when you were a school principal? Yeah, you know, part of it goes back to what I was saying about, you know, our approach to um, discipline, which was restorative, and our philosophy of education, which was educate the whole child. You know, if we can continue to support the social and emotional development of our children, we can better prepare them uh, for the real world. And again, like like social emotional learning is like it's like so ubiquitous now. It's like a catchphrase. Like everyone's talking mm-hmm. about it. But I really want people to understand what that is. Like this is this is research based, right? So Daniel Goldman has done excellent research on emotional intelligence. And many of the large corporations that we that we uh, purchase products and services from, uh, many many other private organizations, they measure social, they measure they measure emotional intelligence almost as much as your your academic uh, background and uh, and achievements. So this is key, right? So our focus on you know we hired a social worker and a guidance counselor for a school of only two hundred and fifty students. And I was also trained as a, as a school counselor. So, you know, I was like a third counselor. Mm-hmm. And then we brought in a fourth. And then we brought in a fifth through visiting nurse service and um, and substance abuse prevention and intervention services. So I wanted a lot of counselors in our school to, to support the, the social and emotional development of our kids and the mental health, uh, the mental health supports for our kids. And, you know, I also believe that you need more teachers, uh, not less teachers. Um, so I rather invest in additional teachers than an additional administrator who's going to be a, a, a paper pusher and or someone to handle discipline. And we didn't feel we ne- we needed that in our school, so we went we went with additional teachers and more uh, staff in the in the guidance uh, office. Mm-hmm. So since the inception of this team, we have consistently kept our eyes on the prize. Uh, that prize being creating creating equitable systems to ensure the best possible student outcomes for all students. As a black man who grew up in New York City and later served as the founding leader of a Bronx school, which we know is the brownest district, borough, city on the map, what changes do you think need to be made to build equitable education systems specifically in New York City? Well, I think we need to be clear on what we mean by outcomes. So when we say student outcomes, what are we talking about? Because throughout my career, that's meant high test scores. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if that's the only thing we're talking about, we need to rethink all of that and what that means. And if that is what we're talking about and what we're serious about, then we need to do a lot more work in early childhood education. And we need to do a lot more work focusing on teaching and learning in the classroom as opposed to just focusing on testing. So, you know, in, there are communities across the country where the students come into kindergarten, you know, ready for kindergarten. And, and they come from homes where both parents received a high school diploma or even college degree. And they've learned so much already in the home. So they're more ready to enter kindergarten and, and access the curriculum. Uh, many communities across New York City uh, have children who don't come from these sorts of homes. So they come in behind the eight ball academically. So by the time the tests come in third grade, they're not quote unquote ready for it. Whereas in ki- kids in other communities, they're, it's almost like a bump in the road. Like, oh, we got this test, boop, boop, I take it, 
I do well on it, mm -hmm. I'm good to go. So if we're, if we're going to keep this current system that we have, and I hope we don't keep it because I don't think it's good for the kids in Scarsdale either. But if we're going to keep this current system, we better do a lot more with early childhood education. And by early childhood, I mean birth to age eight. And we better do a lot more with teaching and learning uh, within the early childhood years so that when kids are, take the test in third grade, they're more ready for it. But for me, you know, this part of the system needs to be just destroyed and rebuilt uh, in an image that, that better meets the needs of what the real world is asking for. The real world is a project-based learning world. It's about working in diverse teams to problem solve. And in doing that, you, you need to be innovative. You need to be a creative problem solver. You need to have an except, exceptional communication skills. Uh, you need to have digital literacy um, and, and understand how to code as like a foreign language. And our schools aren't doing any of this, right? So when we right. say student outcomes, that's what I mean when I say student outcomes, but that's not what the system needs. Mm -hmm. So that's what's problematic. Let, let's get clear on what we mean uh, by student outcomes, and then that will determine all the other steps we need to take and everything else we need to do uh, within, the, within the system. You know, and just to be transparent and clear, you know, I wasn't a straight A student um, growing up in schools. Uh, when they gave me a standardized test, which looked very different then than they do now, I did well on the standardized test in sixth grade that I took. And because I did well, you know, I got into a, um, you know, one of those, spe one of those uh, <laughs> specialized classes in the junior high school I went to. Uh, but I never did well in school because school was boring. The, the curriculum was disengaging. It, it never taught me about my history and culture or, or anything that I was interested in. Um, so there, there's just, we need to rethink how we approach teaching and learning overall. And, and again, use the research because the research is out there uh, in explaining what needs to happen in our schools. So this is, I mean, this is all systems level thinking, right? And, and um, you know, as you alluded to, our education system is so steeped in um, what, uh, you know, Baldwin calls a lie of, uh, of uh, whiteness, right? And, and, and white supremacy and all of that. How do we, how do we go about altering um, and, and, and thinking systemically about about how about the purpose of education and and changing changing just how it functions as a system? How do we go about or, or how you know what would your um, recommendation be about you know how we would go about doing that? I think everyone as an individual needs to be very clear. I'll go through some some reflection and soul searching around why they chose to do this work, right? And, and the work, in my opinion, needs to be mission-driven, particularly when you're serving under-resourced communities. Those communities are under-resourced by design. They are not under-resourced because the, the families there are lazy or the kids are deficient or there's some biological component. This is by design. So slavery was by design. Jim Crow was by design. Economic inequality is by design. Segregation as it currently exists is by design. Racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, Islamophobia, this is all by design. And all the byproduct, byproduct of a design, mass incarceration, all by design. 
So when I, for me, from the very beginning, it was always about providing an education that can liberate our kids and our families towards fighting against that design so that we could change the design. So if that's your mission, then everything else falls into place in alignment with that. So you're going to, you're going to pursue different learning opportunities. You're going to read different books. You're going to watch different documentaries. You're going to have a different lens as you go through learning. Um, This is really like a, this, this is a, this is like a rebirth of the self of the self because you've you've been in a k-12 school system and a college that programmed you in a certain way to think about the world in a certain way and when you realize the world doesn't really work that way Mm -hmm. for everyone you have to pivot you have to physically pivot and and begin doing things differently and it's a painful process you know I'm, i'm a black man in america but i wasn't an expert on what black children need in schools. Like I had to do a lot of learning, you know, I had to do a lot of soul searching and I had to do a lot of learning around, you know, what what black kids may need, you know, and that's what led to me getting a doctorate. That's what led to me reading books like The Miseducation of the Negro Mm -hmm. and and, um, The Destruction of Black Civilization and so many books that I read on my own outside of schools just to get an understanding of my place in this space um so that's you know that 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 individual process is is a key one um and and i encourage everyone to go through that and and then you never stop like it's a lifestyle right so the idea of whiteness you know and and denouncing that idea is not about denouncing white people it's about the nice denouncing an idea that white is superior and when you denounce that, then you can see white people as humans, just like black people, just like everybody else. And if we're all human, now we're all equal. If we're all equal, okay, now now how do we work together uh, equally to make this education system and this world a better place? Um, I recently listened to your interview on Pod Saves America. And um, it struck me that the way you organized your campaign was about giving a voice and building a relationship with people who have often been overlooked or left out of the conversation. Um, You went out into the communities and met the people where they were and listened to and addressed their needs around food banks and PPE. What advice would you give to school leaders about using their position to connect similarly with their community? when you are a school leader you are also a community leader there's no separation of the two you know any school leader any teacher for that matter you've dealt with things in your classroom and in your school that that were not part of the job description that you were not trained to deal with you know when a child comes in and tells you her father was murdered over the weekend you can't separate that 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 occurrence from the trauma that you feel in that moment and from providing a caring environment Mm -hmm. to that child. So it's imperative for school leaders and teachers to work with parents and community-based organizations in collaboration to meet the needs of children and families and and extended communities. So, you know, the school has mechanism, the, the system has mechanisms in place to like facilitate this process. So whether it's a school leadership team, a parent association, uh, or, or partnering with community-based organizations, 
there, there are there are mechanisms in place to to develop this sort of collaborative relationship, and you got to take advantage of those, but not in the in the bureaucratic way that the Department of Education uh, sort of lays out for you. You know, it's like it's not about bylaws; it's about relationships, and like. <laughs> focus on establishing and building quality relationships with people in the community at all levels in the community and then become mission driven as the community. The DOE is not often mission driven enough and it's too dense in its bureaucracy uh, in how it functions. And that's the problem with trying to run a, a, a system that's too damn big. That's why I support ending mayoral control and giving power back to school boards because Mayoral controls 1.1 million students. You, you appoint a chancellor, they're not elected, and that person is supposed to create a system that works for 1.1 million children. That's why it doesn't work the way it should, right? It, 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 it survives. It doesn't thrive. Mm -hmm. We want a system where children and teachers and families can thrive, and, and, and that, mm -hmm. that's just not happening. So the school leader is key to that. And the school leader has to, you know, this is more than a job. You know, this is this is a calling. This is a mission. Mm -hmm. So if you're, what, what are you on a mission to do? Again, like, what are you trying to do? You're trying to get kids to pass the test? Fine. Okay, that's, that's what you want to do. But what about beyond that? Especially if you're serving historically oppressed communities. Mm -hmm. You've you got to be about more than that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Getting in touch with the community, ensuring the underserved know their rights, uh, the counselors and counseling aspect of education and restorative practices. Tell me personally a lot about who you are as a leader. What are your feelings around policing, um, specifically in schools, and how does education need to look and change in order to avoid using a, col a colonized um, mindset to interrupt a colonialist um, system yes i don't know if you know joshua laub who works for the department of youth and no dycd does it work for dycd dycd is within the doe correct mm -hmm. okay so joshua laub uh last name is spelled l-a-u-b is an expert on this question and you really need to talk to him and ask him about this question specifically because he's my go-to for okay. the answer to this question the top line response is we do not need um, police in our schools. We do not need safety agents in our schools, particularly how they are trained. And that's the key. They're trained in this punitive mindset quite often. And they're trained in this sort of top down militaristic, aggressive response approach. Um, so that's the key. If we had school safety agents who were trained in restorative justice from the beginning, mm -hmm. from, I don't mean retrained, I mean trained from the beginning, A to Z, they went through a whole different process and they worked in our schools to support that process, that's different. But right now, just moving them over to the Department of Education and asking them to, to be retrained in restorative justice or not even mm -hmm. asking for that at all uh, is, is, not, is not kosher. But the issue is not just the, the safety agents. The issue is also the, the Department of Education's Department of Youth and Community Development because they're, they're, 
their approach often is not as restorative as it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And many principals approach and many teachers approach are not as restorative as it needs to be. So there needs to be a complete retraining, maybe even rehiring, but we're mm-hmm. talking about uh, this, 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 this mindset, this, this, this punitive, what I consider to be oppressive mindset that we're taking with our kids in our schools. There's still teachers kicking kids out of class and wanting them to be suspended for insubordination uh, in, many, in too many places throughout the city. Uh, there are too many principals who are still suspending kids for insubordination and other infractions that could be handled differently. Way too many still happening throughout the city and they're still disproportionately black and brown. So there's a, there's a cultural disconnect, there's a historical disconnect, and there's this, there's this sort of limited ideology that, you know, when a, when a, when a, when a child or a particular child does something wrong, they just need to be punished. And, and that's it. And, and people don't understand that discipline is supposed to be a learning process. And if we look at discipline as a learning process, then everything related to discipline is educational. So this is not about a lack of accountability for kids. This is about us relearning how to approach discipline with our kids. So yes, we should defund the police. We need to reallocate those resources towards issues of public health, both in our school and beyond our school. And the last thing I'll say is this, I've never felt, the police don't keep me safe. The police don't keep my family safe. I've never felt that I needed a lot of police around for me to remain safe. What's kept me safe and secure is having food on, on the table, clothes on my back, a roof over my head, a quality education, friendships that I could depend on, and places to play and develop culturally. That's what leads to safety, not police. Police, only 5% of what they respond to in their jobs are, are literally issues of safety, like rape, aggravated assault, murder. 5%. The other 95% are issues with people with disabilities, administrative issues, tickets, things that a non-police force or a non-armed police force can deal with. Uh, so it's something that needs to be completely rethought and reimagined. Wow. Yeah. Um, so in the, in the Bronx, we, we've had a lot of training. Um, every single principal has been trained in Beyond Diversity. Uh, shout out to Dr. Glenn Singleton. Um, every principal, most teachers have gone through IB training. Um, what advice would you give to school building leaders who are unclear about their equity goals or teachers who are afraid to have real conversations with students and peers about potential trauma from COVID, but also um, trauma from, but, but but also cultural trauma. Try another profession. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, how are you unclear about your equity goals in this moment in history? And how are you unclear about your equity goals after receiving all that training? Y'all I've been to some of that. Our training is excellent, very good. Very good training. At the very least, it gets you to think about something that you might want to follow up on your own. So right. what you're describing to me or what you're asking me about, what I'm hearing is these people aren't ready, willing, and able to do the necessary work. The work has to be done beyond the training. And if these people aren't ready to do the work beyond the training, then 
they need to choose another profession because you're teaching black or brown kids and these black or brown kids feel inferior because they are black and brown. They feel inferior because they don't have straight hair. They feel inferior because they have flat noses and big lips. And the darker skin you are, the more inferior you feel. And they feel inferior because uh, they're not in the textbooks talk, talked about in any you know, powerful way. They feel inferior because all their teachers are white. They feel inferior because they live in communities without, uh, without um, museums and community centers. They feel inferior because their families is, are poor. They feel inferior because they don't have access to quality health care. So this is, I just gave you 10 goals right there, like that you could work off of if you have the right mindset. And then let me say this, this false sense of superiority related to whiteness is a problem too. Because now as a white person, the only thing I get yep. to hang my hat on is the fact that I'm white and I haven't even been allowed to be human. We have to we have to do the work both ways and get us all to a baseline level of humanity, you know. And, and you know this this racism stuff is, is what is given birth to religious discrimination and gender discrimination and 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 discrimination based on sexuality. It, it's a it's a social Darwinism psychotic mindset that continues to perpetuate itself. And if we have people in our schools who have to go through the training, you're still not clear. That tells me you you don't you you don't want to solve the problem of of inequity and injustice in our society. You don't want to solve that problem because if you wanted to, you would do the work to get clear. The same way we all got to do the work to get clear on the learning objective in our classroom mm -hmm. to teach them a particular skill related to the standards. So, yeah, that would be my advice. Choose another profession if you're not ready to do the work. I completely agree. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Dr. Bowman, I have a two-part question for you. Uh, the first is, do you think you will miss your principalship? And the second part is, what do you think are uh, the lessons and learnings that you believe are imperative for you to take with you into your next position? Uh, no, I'm not going to miss the principalship. Um, <laughs> and, and it's not, I miss the kids, yes, but not the job, uh, because the job began to suck the life out of me. I felt like I wasn't allowed to do anything that was truly innovative. Um, so got to the point where I was like, I, you know, I'm good with this. Miss the kids always. And it would have been harder to run for office if, my school wasn't also in the district where I ran. So that, that was very key because like I was able to go back to the school. I resigned January 1st, was able to go back to the school, see the kids, reconnect with the kids, um, reconnect with the community. Now I walk the community, people see me, like parents that used to. So the, that was key that I was able to stay connected to the community. Um, you know, for the last 20 years as an educator, my job has been one of service. But, I, you know, as a, as a teacher, you are a servant. As a counselor, you are a servant. As a principal, you are a servant. And in being a servant, you you have to listen. You have to take in information. You have to learn, be a learner. You have to understand the context of what's happening. And then you have to figure out how to problem solve, and not just individually, but collectively. And, you know, when I was a teacher, I would visit other 
teachers' classrooms to see what they were doing and, and observe and, and steal ideas. You know, as a school counselor, I, I worked with community-based organizations to bring in additional resources uh, to MLK High School. And as a principal, I did the same thing. So, like, there, there's, a, there's a hustle um, and there's a collaboration aspect of the work that you need to have in Congress as well. But then there's also uh, a listening, a learning, a problem solving, and an empathy aspect of the work that I hope to take to Congress also. You know, it's a, you know, my, my, my pol the policy that I'm going to be fighting for has to be rooted in empathy. Empathy for my kids, man, like the kids that I worked with. And, and I'm going to always be thinking about them. And I, I already am. Like whenever I, you know, throughout the campaign, you know, everybody learned about me and my school and the kids that I served because that's who I spoke about. And and just to let you just give you an example about how power of how powerful it resonated, um, we uh, we were able to triple voter turnout in this primary election as compared to the last primary election. Wow. And I was in the middle of a pandemic, mm -hmm. so imagine it wasn't a pandemic; it would have been even higher. We triple turnout amongst young people, and we triple turned out turnout amongst people of color. And we won both the Bronx and Westchester. And there were people who thought we were not going to win Westchester because all I talked about was racial and economic justice the whole campaign. But what I've been trying to tell people is white people care about those issues too, and they want and they want a space to talk about those issues as well. And and even if you take away Yonkers and Mount Vernon, uh we still won like white Westchester, quote unquote, white <laughs> Westchester, mm -hmm. you know? So like the message because of my background in education resonated more deeply. And that's why I hope educators like take the leap and run for office, you know, city council, state house, Congress, county positions, school boards. Like we need educators in these spaces. It's vitally important. Well, Dr. Bowman, You've said a lot that I'm really thinking about today. Um, in particular, what do we mean when we're talking about student outcomes? And how can we use that definition to ensure that we're providing an education that liberates students from this system? So what is one thing that you would like the listeners to take away from this conversation? I don't know, man, you know, whatever <laughs> they want to, <laughs> whatever they want to take away. I don't know. It's up to them. But let me clarify something. So there is a place and a time for standardized tests. It's not every year from grades three through eight, and it's not for nine hours at a time every year. An mm -hmm. eight-year-old shouldn't be sitting for nine hours of testing. That shit is crazy, okay? But there's a space, right? So if I had to make a compromise, I would say, okay, test them in fourth grade, test them in seventh grade, make it one day, snapshot let's see where they are let's see what they need that's it one mm -hmm. day early one day math that's it and then provide supports not use it as this gotcha system to to blame teachers close schools and open up charter schools and that's something we haven't talked about uh much in this call is is the is the charter school agenda mm -hmm. which testing is a part of that the one thing, the one thing I would I would I would encourage everyone to do. What would make me most excited is if people left this call excited to go back to their schools and to their place of work as revolutionaries. 
like literally pushing back against the system in a very organized, strategic, outspoken way um, towards dramatic change. Because I, I'm very, I'm very proud, you know, and humbled that I'm speaking to you today as the congressional elect in New York 16. Mm-hmm. Like that's Huge. like even yesterday. Like the the final results came down Friday. And uh, I was calling all my friends yesterday, like random calls. I'm like, yo, can you believe this shit? Like, <laughs> like, like we actually won, yo. Like, we, like, can you believe that we just won this? Like, it was just crazy to me that, like, but it was so powerful because, like, we believed we can win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we won. Yeah. You know, it's like the power of belief. But it's not belief without work, mm-hmm. right? We worked our butts off to, you, to, to, get, to get this victory. Um, but it's not just that. It's like I was—I've been an outspoken educator my entire career, mm-hmm. and many would argue at great risk. Like mm-hmm. I, you know, there wasn't—there wasn't a year. Maybe, maybe, maybe there was a couple of years, but I was constantly under investigation as a school principal, constantly for dumb shit that I knew was not going to lead anywhere. But it, for whatever reason, because I was always outspoken in that way. So I was constantly under investigation, and and and, and to to put the icing on the cake, I was under investigation while running for Congress from the DOE. <laughs> like that's, that's like the ultimate like craziness, right? But um, but the point is, I knew, especially after I got tenure, I knew if I didn't hurt a kid or steal money, I was going to be good, pretty mm-hmm. much. Like mm-hmm. you know, so. I could push the agenda. I wasn't going to hurt no kids and I wasn't going to steal any money. So, you know, my, I hope that people leave this conversation and go back with a, with a, with a sense of urgency around pushing back against the system, because think about where we are. We're in a country that has Donald Trump as president. Like, think about that. Like that, that's, that is, that is very scary. It's very, very scary. You know, um, he is dangerous, and we we've seen it based on his re- response to COVID. Like tens of thousands of lives could have been saved if we had a competent president in that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if we don't push back against the system, we'll get another. He'll get another four years, and we get a and, and or we'll get someone else like him in the future. Oof. Right. So, you know, we have a system where our schools are owed four billion dollars. You know. Parents and teachers should be should be marching in the streets in Albany, demanding this. Hundreds of thousands of parents need to be demanding this every single day. And you know who we got demanded from the governor. And you know how we get it is by him taxing the rich and the wealth. And there are organizations out there doing this work, AQE and others who are doing this work. But educators got to be a part of that work, especially when you're tenured. Now, I want to say that again mm-hmm. because I know it's more risky when you're not. When you're not, it's like, okay, you know, you, no one wants to lose their job. But, like, I did think I was under investigation before I got tenured. As a matter of fact, uh, there was a period, my, my, my tenure was pushed back a year because I was under investigation during my third year for some nonsense. So be bold, be urgent, get out there and, and stir things up. And if something's not, not right, you got to speak out on it. You got to organize around it, and you got to continue to apply that pressure. Because, you know, um, the governor, the the 
Commissioner of Education, the Board of Regents, the Chancellor, the Mayor, they're not coming to save you. They don't have the answers. They do not at all. And, and the answer that's right in front of them, taxing the wealthy and changing and following the research, they ignore it because everyone is co-opted by the wealthy elite. The wealthy elite control all of America's institutions and people power can push back against that. Mm -hmm. So that's my, you know, that's what I would say. The one thing, be revolutionary. So typically we would ask guests, like how can people get in contact with you or find out um, about what's going on with you? Um, but you're a pretty public figure, so I'm pretty sure people know that they can um, go to your Twitter or um, your website. But can you talk to us a little bit more about how to truly become revolutionary? Here's how you be revolutionary, for real, for real, for real. So we, we mentioned earlier, um, you got to do the work, yeah. right? So the, doing the work is partly about talking to people like me but what's more important is the work you do right now after you get off this call like what are you doing to make yourself the best self you can be to continue to do this work at the level it needs to be done so like literally this may sound like this is not a part of this conversation but it's very important you need to eat right you need to exercise you need to pray and or meditate you need to surround yourself with good people. You need to read everything you could get your hands on and find a topic that you're really passionate about diving deep, 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 deep into. Read everything you can on that. Watch a lot of documentaries. Uh, do something creative like writing or something in, on a consistent basis. It helps just keep, keep you balanced. And um, use social media, not just for the social stuff, but also for connecting with others and learning more about particular topics and organizing on social media. And I would advise uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, and, and yeah, and, and what, when you do all of, all of that, you're going to, you're going to, it's going to lead you to organizations that are already doing a lot of work. And I, and I could, and, and not to be funny, I could forward you like a list of organizations doing the work. As a matter of fact, if you go to my website, uh, bowmanforcongress.com, and you look at the organ, you click on endorsements, and just look at all the organizations that endorse us. Those are the organizations on the ground every day doing the work for the people of this city, working for your kids, working for your families, whether it's housing, immigration reform, substance abuse, uh, racial justice, senior care, like don't, the website has all of that. So yes, if you want to do more with a with an organization and pull them into your school, hell yeah, doing that. These schools, these organizations are waiting for that because the more members they have, the more powerful, the more people power they have. And the mm -hmm. more people power they have, the more you put pressure on Governor Cuomo to change policy. And being an educator is very political. Do not let anyone tell you different. Your salary is paid by taxpayer money. Mm -hmm. That makes it political. So you, your voice got to be at the table, not just educators, but parents. Organize with parents and, and get it done. So 
yeah, be revolutionary and, um, you know, do the work. You, you, you do the work and, and, you know, what, what I tell my son, you do the work and you put a dent in the universe that creates a spiritual pathway towards your destination. So the work reveals the pathway that you need to travel. Wow. Well, that's, um, that's exactly where we need to leave this conversation. That's it right there. <laughs> um, you know, so we are, I'll, I, I can speak for the whole team here, I'm sure. Uh, we are fully behind moment for Congress. Uh, we are really excited. And we're also um, probably, you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but but behind Bowman for president one day too. So uh, we're looking forward to it. <laughs> it was said here first. Oh, oh man, thank y'all. Looking thank forward you. to that. Thank y'all so much. No, thank you is, so much. This is great, man. This is great. Listen, so uh, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask y'all to go to BowmanForCongress.com and make a contribution to the campaign. Uh, and that's not why I did this video, but like. That's my job now. Mm -hmm. Like I gotta always ask Absolutely. people for money. So <laughs> if you got, if you got, if you got, you know, a couple of dollars you can toss our way, great. If you know people who can mm -hmm. support, that's great too. Right. So once again, if you want to donate uh, to Dr. Bowman's campaign, it is www.bowmanforcongress.com. Uh, donate whatever you can. If you can't donate, um, follow him follow his campaign and him on all of his socials, uh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Um, and uh, you can always support, support in other ways by volunteering, phone banking, and all that, all that goes a long, long way. And thank you to the audience. Uh, it's been a great season one. If you want to learn more about the topics that we mentioned today or have questions about what was shared, send us a voice message on Anchor. Connect with us on Twitter at VX underscore art team. Uh, visit our website at sites.google.com backslash strongschools.nyc backslash bronxart backslash. Please like our podcast and leave us a review. This was a really great season. Uh, I had a blast making it. Um, and uh, special thanks to um, to everyone who was who participated in this uh, season. That would be um, Adelia and Caitlin are responsible for most of the editing. Um, we've also had Lisette and Jermaine and Rachel and everyone else who participated. Uh, huge, huge thank you, and to all of our guests. Also, a thank you. It's been a wonderful, wonderful season one. Uh, and we are super excited for season two. We've already started working on it, so uh, everyone get ready. It's gonna be it's gonna be great. Um, look out for some bonus content in the meantime from our team, uh, and make sure that you're subscribed to know when when season two picks back up. Everyone, be well. We look forward to talking to you soon again. <laughs>